My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Kathy Edwards. Once upon a time... Canada had regulatory infrastructure that compelled cable television companies to set aside money for equipment and training to allow members of the communities in which they operated to produce community-based programming. By the end of the 1990s, those regulations were largely gutted, and the consequent access to the TV system for ordinary people had mostly disappeared. Lobbying has won a few modest improvements to the regulations since that time, including a new class of broadcast TV license analogous to the community and campus radio stations some of you are listening to me speak on right now. However, genuine community access to most corporate cable companies remains extremely limited, and the harsh realities of steeper infrastructure costs for TV than radio, lack of resources, and lack of awareness of this option have meant that only nine stations have ever been issued community licenses, compared to more than 200 in the radio sector. Edwards is the Executive Director of the Canadian Association of Community Television Users and Stations, or CACTUS. The members of CACTUS have a vision. It is a vision of community-based and community-controlled media centers in big cities and small towns across the country. These centers would not only give ordinary people access to the airwaves, they would also be hubs for providing infrastructure and training to build capacity in communities around creating all manner of media, including text, audio, and video, and using the entire range of online platforms through which such things get published, circulated, and consumed in the Internet age. They are taking a multi-pronged approach, pushing for further regulatory changes, making use of thus far unused sections of existing regulations, and working to catalyze the development of such centers in the here and now. And they even have a plan for how such community-controlled media infrastructure could be sustainably funded. Edwards talks with me about the origins of Cactus, about the evolving community broadcast media landscape in Canada, and about their plans to ensure that a broad range of ordinary people have access to the means to make all sorts of grassroots media. I spoke with Edwards by Skype from Ottawa. My name is Catherine Edwards. I'm the founder and executive director of the Canadian Association of Community Television Users and Stations. That's a mouthful. The acronym is CACTUS. It's a group that was formed in 2008 from Canadians that were concerned about the fact that it was becoming increasingly difficult to get access to cable community channels. So when we think of Wayne's World in Canada, people used to have this democratic outlet on broadcast TV and that outlet was fast closing. So Cactus was formed to reverse that situation, so to maintain platforms for people to express themselves on mainstream TV, but also to upgrade community TV policy to take into account the digital reality that we live in now where video can be streamed and accessed in many different ways besides traditional broadcast TV. I did an English degree and I was lucky enough to take some courses in film and TV during my degree and realized that's where I wanted to apply my storytelling skills. 
the first chance I got to get any experience in the industry, not even as a job, was volunteering for community television channels. And later on, I shot a drama for community TV here in Ottawa with an ex-program director at the National Film Board of Canada who'd had a hand in setting up community TV policy. And it was just a real eye-opener on how community media can both offer a training platform for people where they're training projects. They're not just dead. They, they actually go out to the community, and this great feedback process is set up with the community where people honing their skills as well as just anyone with a message can directly connect with their communities. And then my first job in the film and TV industry was as a trainer at a community TV channel in Calgary. So again, I had a great chance back in the day when the platform worked to see the impact that it had on real people's lives. So I was working at Shaw Cable in Calgary in 1997 when one summer we were asked to write a letter to our 400 plus volunteers and just tell them not to come back in the fall because they weren't wanted anymore. And it was weird. None of us at that time, meaning the employees that actually worked at that channel facilitating public access, understood that community television was actually a mandated, regulated requirement of cable license holders. And so we had no idea, even as staff, when that happened, what that meant or how they could suddenly do that. And in fact, what had happened is the CRTC had deregulated community TV. They'd sort of made it optional for cable companies believing that it was mature and cable companies would want it to distinguish themselves from satellite, which was just at that time coming in. And what cable had decided to do to keep subscribers was to soup up their community channels. And in their minds, what that meant was kicking volunteers off and professionalizing the content, so getting staff to make all the productions from then on. So I saw that happen, and I saw the impact on the community. They felt that a channel was being taken away from them, but there was also a lot of confusion. They didn't know that they had a right to complain or that it originally had been a CRTC-mandated thing. It wasn't just a nice thing that the cable companies did. <laughs> so I quit at that time and went on a fact-finding journey around the world with a small grant from the Canadian Film and Video Fund to find out what was going on with community television in other countries. So for a number of years, I, I traveled and also gave workshops so meanwhile, while I was off traveling, there was another community TV policy review in 2002, and a lot of complaints surfaced at that time. So there was groups on the West Coast that had been kicked off Rogers channels that were very angry. There was a number of groups in the Montreal area that had been kicked off Videotron channels who were very angry. And the CRTC, for the first time, you know, heard a lot of complaints that deregulating community TV in 1997 hadn't worked. It had just led to a lot of people being disenfranchised. And so they did two things. They did impose a minimum of access content, so content that's really supposed to be made by the community on the cable companies. And they also introduced a license class for community TV, similar to community radio, that not-for-profit groups and community groups could hold for themselves, so apart from the cable company. And the rationale for the community-held license class, well, there's two rationales. One was cable had been losing market share since satellite had come in. So the commission was aware that not everybody had cable anymore. Those people also had a right to a community channel. How can we reach them with one? Well, we can offer over-the-air community TV licenses. So the new class of license was an over-the-air license. But like all local channels in Canada, they automatically get carried in the basic cable tier. So those were steps forward, but there was no funding formula attached to those early over-the-air community TV licenses. And maybe I need to backtrack here, Scott, for a sec to just explain how community TV is funded in Canada. 
So cable companies and also satellite companies now are expected to contribute 5% of the revenues that they collect for their television services. So 5% of every cable bill or satellite bill that you pay is supposed to go to the production of Canadian content to ensure that there's strong Canadian content available. And if a cable company elects to offer a community channel, rather than spending the whole 5% and sending it off to the Canada Media Fund or these other funds that we have that Canadian producers can dip into to make Canadian content, they're allowed to keep two of the 5% in-house and offer a community TV channel. And it adds up to quite a lot. So across the country, 2% of cable and satellite revenue in Canada comes to about $130 million a year. So cable companies at the moment are ostensibly spending $130 million a year coast-to-coast coast to program their own community channels, and they're supposed to be training the public and offering equipment access and so on. But none of that percentage has ever been available for the independent class of license. And as a result, because historically TV is a little more expensive to make than radio, very few communities either know about those or have been able to find the funding to make it work. So there's only nine holders of those independent, not-for-profit community TV licenses in Canada. So fewer than one per province, whereas you got over 200 community radio channels by comparison. There was mumbles that there was going to be another community TV and community radio policy review around 2009-2010. And so in preparation for that, Michael Lithgow and Drew OJJ, that's connected with uh, Dominion Magazine, formed uh, and designed the current Cactus website so that Canadians could start connecting with one another and sharing their stories about what was going on with community television in their communities and start mobilizing in a more organized way. And so the first time Cactus appeared as an entity at a public hearing or in a public forum was at the CRTC's 2008 Diversity of Voices hearing. So the CRTC has voiced concern a number of times about media concentration, the Bells and the Shaws and the Rogers of the World buying up all the private TV channels. So there's very few ownership groups left in Canada. And that was the first big hearing where they looked at it as an explicit issue. And so Cactus intervened to say, your biggest bang for the buck in terms of maintaining diversity of voices is funding and supporting a strong community media sector because it means that outside of corporate control, you've always got places that people can go as a safety valve, as it were, to voice opinions and take stands that aren't happening on corporate media. In 2010, in the final months leading up to the Community TV Policy Review, we actually incorporated, and I guess within the last couple of years, we've done more fundraising to make sure we can you know, have somebody here working all the time, and it's not just volunteers. We advocate for members that already have licenses, but because there's so few of them, much of our time is about reaching out to other communities in Canada that don't even know these licenses exist and helping them set up community media centers. I notice that in talking about this, the language that you use is community media centers as opposed to community television stations. Tell me about why that distinction matters. It's a digital universe now where video, of course, as we all know, can be distributed over the air on cable and satellite, you know, linear channels that we grew up with, but it can also be archived and downloaded on demand from Internet platforms and also distributed by mobile platforms. 
So community media sources, whether that's TV or radio, are already on their own using digital platforms to experiment with the other media. So we already have community radio channels that are also doing podcasts and things where somebody has set up a camera during an interview and you can see it as well as hear it. Less so the other way, because once you're doing television, it's not an obvious why you would take your video away and go back to an audio-only platform. And also text is blending. So when we think of blog sites or online media, there is often a text story and then you can watch the video clip or you can see the still picture or you can hear the audio clip. The medium on their own, thanks to digital platforms, are already blending. So there's no point going to communities and and encouraging them to set up a traditional community TV channel because you want to equip communities to take advantage of whatever the new media tool of the day is. What hasn't changed in the last 30 years is the component media that we use to express ourselves. So people still need to learn how to master text, and they generally do that in school. They still need to learn how to master audio if they want to produce a radio show. But again, most people have learned to talk. We know how to listen from school, so it's a relatively small jump to go to a community radio channel and learn the technical aspects of cutting together a radio interview or learning how to host and ask questions. It's another whole jump on top of that to learn how to manipulate moving images, but they're not distinct. So whether you're delivering content on Facebook or Twitter or on the Internet or over the air, the component media skills that you need to produce media are the same. It's the tools that are constantly changing. So what we feel is important that exists at the community level, much like a 21st century library, if you want to look at it that way, is that there's somewhere where people can go for lifelong learning to find out about the current media tools of the day. So if you're a seniors group and you're trying to convene, you know, bingo or a book club meeting, you know, how do you use Facebook to do that? Or if you're a not-for-profit organization interested in the environment, How do you make sure that you're visible? How do you shoot a video? It's to give individuals and organizations and small businesses the tools that they need to be visible and participate, regardless of what the tools of the day are. So it's not about community TV, community radio, or community newspaper. It's about being a media center where people can learn and access all the tools and also access all the platforms they might need when their messages are ready to go. We often get asked, why do we need community television policy and official funding now that we've got social media, now that we've got YouTube and things like that? And I think the answer is, yes, techno-savvy 18-year-olds can run around with camcorders and post their own content, but it's not community media. Community media is typically defined by geography, so it's supposed to give a platform for reflection to a community at a given time. And for that, we think you need an actual bricks-and-mortar facility where people in that community can come together, learn about media, share the challenges before the community, and figure out how to use media as a tool to address it. And it's in that process of creating media together that solutions come out of it. So you need places where people can meet. It's not enough that people are producing little interesting videos and uploading them on YouTube, although those are great. And there also needs to be a regular programming schedule so people know that they can tune into this platform and find content so that there's a feedback process and a process of expectation and commitment that's built up between the community and the community media outlets so that there's a sense of it's a community undertaking that we all put into on a regular basis. I think that's what community media is. And secondly, lots of people in the community, and it's often the most important people for community media to serve, are the least techno-savvy ones that don't know how to express themselves and perhaps aren't articulate yet on any media. 
there has to be active outreach to those groups in any community. Again, you need a bricks and mortar facility with facilitators that are working to make the best of the community media potential in a place. Both the policy advocacy side of your work and also the catalyzing and supporting community media centers. What have those two facets of the work looked like in the last couple of years? On the policy side, in 2010, the last time the CRTC examined community TV, there were 3,000 Canadians that complained about the cable community system, and there was a very strong call that that $130 million that's collected from cable subscribers across the country, instead of being spent by cable companies and administered by cable companies, license area by license area, should be put in a national fund similar to the professional production funds we have in Canada. There should be an equivalent national community media fund that community groups that go get community TV or radio licenses could apply to to support community media centers. So we made that strong call in 2010, and the CRTC didn't respond, other than to beef up and make stronger, in their view, the existing community TV policy that we have. So the cable companies are still in charge of the money, but instead of having to facilitate 30% community-generated content in a programming week, now they're expected to do 50%. And they also tightened up definitions of what an access program is because a lot of cable companies have been saying that professionally produced content was access content if someone from the community is just interviewed. So they sort of tweaked with the policy and introduced some new monitoring tools. But in our view, they missed the point. The horses left the barn as far as big companies' ability to administer community media. So the policy was a failure in a way in terms of immediate results. But we hear kind of in one-on-one conversations here and there that all the commissioners and CRTC know that the cable model doesn't work. They just haven't figured out in their minds and committed to how they're going to change it and what the new model should be. And I think they also know that there's a problem that community radio and community TV policy are still separate. You know, we're not reflecting the digital reality out there with our community media policy in Canada. So we're preparing for the next policy review. The other thing we're testing about policy is that since 2002, there has been a clause in community TV policy that says if a cable company either doesn't want to offer a community channel or isn't operating its community channel in compliance with the policy, so they're not letting the public on, they're not training the public and so on, that a not-for-profit group within the license area can apply to run the channel instead and have the budget that the cable company collects from subscribers. So that's been sitting there on the book since 2002. And ever since I got involved in 2008, when people call me from across the country and they say, you know, I can't get on my local Shaw channel or, you know, Eastlink isn't, you know, they've shut their studio. I get these calls and I say, well, look, do you want to file a complaint under this clause? But to file the complaint, it has to mean you've got a not-for-profit group with experience in the group to run a television channel, and often people that call, I mean, they may be a volunteer and know how to run a camera, but they don't feel they have the administrative or management skills to do that. You know, it's a big undertaking, or they need to know that they have four months they can take off work and prepare the complaint. Like, it's a lot of work. So nobody had taken that on until a group in Montreal last fall decided to challenge Videotron for its right to run the community channel in Montreal Cactus helped them get up to snuff on what the regulation says and how to audit Videotron's existing program schedule. And incidentally, we agreed with them in their findings that not a single program currently on Videotron in Montreal is really made by a volunteer. 
they appeared to be all professional hosts and producers. So that was a big coup for us to find a group that actually had the experience to prepare a license application like that and credibly offer an alternative. So that's really exciting and we're still waiting for the outcome for that. So that's what we've been doing on the policy side. Aside from policy, the license class does exist and any group right now can get a license. It's just there's no money for it. But that doesn't mean that communities can't auto finance. So what we're doing simultaneously, we got a small grant from the Trillium Foundation here in Ontario two years ago to start outreach to municipalities, bands, and we elected to include public libraries because we think that they make sense as a host for media literacy skills and equipment in the future. Doing outreach across Ontario to let them know about the potential for digital media. So since the new digital TV transmitters can multiplex many channels at once. So if you buy one secondhand digital transmitter, for example, you know, you might be able to pick up one for as little as say $10,000. You could put the one box redistribute up to six or eight standard definition TV channels. In addition to giving communities a low-cost option to get off reliance on cable and satellite and have total control over their own local content and create local content, having their own towers and digital transmitters can also enable them to bring broadband access. So a lot of parts of rural Canada are still on dial-up, and it's recognized in industry circles that in rural parts of the country, it's probably always going to be too expensive to run fiber op house by house but it is viable to broadcast high-speed wireless internet in rural areas. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why digital technologies that have just come online in the last three or four years can make a really big difference, especially in rural areas. So we've been targeting those. One of the things that jumps out at me is it seems to be kind of pushing against the general tide in terms of government orientations towards regulation in that it seems to be pushing not-for-profit rather than for-profit, and in some sense more regulation rather than less. And both of those seem to be pushing against what a lot of governments have been doing in the last number of years. How does that broader climate when it comes to regulation relate to the goals that you've set out for Cactus's work? So in our view, it's actually less regulation. So what we have now is an extremely cumbersome community television policy that tries to get big private corporations to do something that they patently don't want to do. They're not set up to do it anymore. They're just too big. They're not resident in the communities. It just doesn't make sense structurally. I mean, in the 2010 policy review, they raised these different regulatory requirements, but they're not monitoring them. So nothing's happening. So that's extremely inefficient and regulatory heavy. What we're saying is that communities themselves have a vested interest in wanting to do this. So we're saying cut the cable companies out of it, make it more efficient, get the money that's collected for this purpose to the communities on the ground that can best carry out this mandate. So actually, as far as regulation, we say it is much less regulation, less burdensome on the regulator if you were letting communities do it themselves, because then they'd be answerable to the community. I agree with you on the second point, that we seem to live in an environment in which everybody believes that the private sector can do everything better than not-for-profits. And yet that flies in the face of the Broadcasting Act. The 1991 Broadcasting Act is very clear that there's supposed to be private, public, and community sectors in the broadcasting system. And the Broadcasting Act properly recognized that when you have 
different ownership structures for media and different ways of funding media, you should get different kinds of content and you need that diversity of content. So our belief is that the Broadcasting Act got it right, that to have diversity of media, you need different structures that can fund and manage media or else it's all going to look the same. And you're right that the CRTC is going in a different direction on that. One of the challenges in community radio is getting people to pay attention. There are some, you know, community radio stations out there doing some really neat, really creative, really interesting things. But it's always a question of how many people are listening. What can we do to make the community more aware that this resource exists and to make good use of it? What are your thoughts on how to incorporate an awareness of that as communities move forward developing community media centers? I think community television performs two different functions in rural areas compared to urban areas. In rural areas where there isn't any public or private media or only really occasional coverage, you know, when there's an oil spill or something that's suddenly in that region and, you know, stringers are flown out there to cover it, the community media is the only media and becomes effectively the mainstream. So everything's on there. And in those smaller places, everybody's watching it. In urban areas, I think it performs a different function. It becomes a niche broadcaster. Community media in an urban setting is meant to give a voice to the voices that aren't getting on the other mainstream media that's present there. I do think that there's ways you can strengthen it in an urban setting. As an organization, we tend to push and advocate that users think about building bridges and using community media as a, as a dialogue builder as opposed to, you know, a platform where it's many users, but they're all in their own little silos. But, you know, those are the decisions that each community has to work out. So that's one answer to how do you make it more watched in urban settings. But I think the other way is they need to be funded properly. If community media isn't adequately funded, it's always going to be marginal. So what do you see coming up in the next year or so for Cactus? We know that the CRTC will review community TV policy again in 2015-2016. What we would like to have in advance of that formal policy review is that there should be a national stakeholder conference where participants in the alternative media sector, as well as the community media sector, as well as user groups of community media, as well as the professional production industry, as well as academics, as well as journalists, you know, have a chance to talk about what should Canada's digital community media policy be. You know, what do we need for the next 20 years to make it really rock here? So we we recently went to the People's Social Forum where we met you, Scott, and at the Alternative Media Assembly that was part of that forum, we put forward a proposal and asked for help and feedback about this idea, and we got a really great response. So from academics, uh, actors, other journalists in alternative and community media, you know, a whole range of groups and individuals really interested to help us make that reality. So that's what we're looking forward to in the immediate future. We think that's the best possible lead up to a policy review. You have been listening to my interview with Kathy Edwards, the executive director of the Canadian Association of Community Television Users and Stations, or CACTUS. To learn more about their work, go to cactus.independentmedia.ca. That's cactus.independentmedia.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.